want to talk to you this morning about uh, eggs. All right? We all go to the grocery store and we buy eggs. And there's all different kinds of eggs, right? There's grade A, there's grade double A, there's farm raised, there's all these kind of different kinds of eggs. But I want you to tell me the difference. One of these is a grade A and one of them is a grade double A. Which one's which? They look the same, don't they? I'm going to need some help. Jacob, come up here. Grant, Jackson, come up here. I need your help. Come on up. Grant, you can hold this. Okay, here's my challenge. The difference between these two eggs is on the inside. But how do we see what's inside of them? Oh, great idea. Let's shine the light on. So turn that light on. All right, let's do this. Now, you guys can't see this. Okay, but this is what we're going to look at. Let me show you guys what this looks like. All right, we're going to look for a little circle. Y'all see that circle right there? Yeah, y'all see that? Yeah. Let's look at this one. See the circle there? No, not as much, is it? Now, so the difference between these eggs, guys, is the, the, how big that circle is up on top. And that's just an air pocket. Have you ever boiled an egg and it's got a little indention? Well, that's why. The bigger the air pocket, the older the egg is, the lower the grade. Now, the other thing that you can see inside of an egg, let's turn that light back on, Grant. Y'all see any spots or anything inside the egg? There's kind of one right there, isn't it? Well, here's the deal, though. That may be on the in, that may be on the shell and not inside. So what they'll do is they'll take the egg and they'll kind of spin it like this, and the yolk moves inside. So if that spot moves, you know it's inside the egg, and that's a defect that changes the grade of the egg. If it doesn't move, it's on the outside, right? And so that's just the shell. It doesn't matter. So those are the ways they determine what looks like to be very same thing, but there's a difference, and they grade them that way. So you guys can sit down. Have a seat. Thanks. What's really cool about this is if, uh, what, Jacob, what else is inside of an egg? What else can be inside here besides just the yolk? Is there anything that grows in here sometimes? What about a baby chick, right? Isn't that cool? So actually you can do the same thing that we just did, shine a light on that egg, and if there's a chick inside, you can see it. You can see a little baby chick inside. Now, here's the deal. That egg that I just showed you looks just like one that has a chick inside, and you don't know the difference between one and the other until you shine the light on it, and then it becomes apparent that there's life inside that egg. Okay? This morning, John's going to make a statement describing the essence of who God is, and this is what he's going to say. He's going to say, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. This is important because he's writing to a church filled with people who are all claiming to be Christians. And like a carton of eggs, when you look at them, they look very similar to one another on the outside. But John says they're not the same because there's something different going on inside their heart. But how do you know? How do you tell the difference between one and the other? And what he'll say is it all depends on the light. Because the light of Christ, when it shines on our heart, reveals what's inside. Right? Because remember, he's writing to Christians to give them an assurance of their salvation. And there's all this confusion going on. So John wants them to know, here's how you understand 
what it means to have the life of Christ inside you so that when that light shines on your heart, that you see life inside. And that's what he's going to walk us through in our passage this morning. So before we do that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I'm so grateful for the way that your word enlightens our heart. It allows us to see what's inside. Because from a world's perspective, everything looks very similar to one another. But from your view, there's a difference. And you want us to understand and know with utmost clarity what it means to have life inside our heart. And so, God, as we look at your word this morning, would your light please, by your grace, shine brightly within us so that it becomes clear who we are, whose we are, and who it is that lives within us. That's our prayer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you would, turn to 1 John. 1 John, we'll pick up where we left off last. We'll begin in verse 5. And again, John's writing to give that assurance of salvation. And here's where he develops how we know if the life of Christ resides in our heart. Look at verse 5. He says, and this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light. He is the the source of light that reveals what is inside our heart. And I want you to notice that John emphasizes the message about the essence of who God is, not as an idea that he came up with, On his own. Look at what he says. He says, and this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. What he announces to us is what he heard from Christ, who alone is qualified to speak to the essence of the character of God. Now, you and I have read Scripture, and we know that Jesus said a lot of things. We looked at some of those when we went through our miracle passage. Does anybody remember a time when God stood, or when Jesus stood before anybody and said, God is light? Do you all remember that? Not exactly those words, but what did he say about light? He said, I am the light, right? When he stood before the people, he says, I am the light of the world. His light shined in our dark world. God is light, and Jesus is that light that became visible to us in a dark world. And something happens when we draw near to that light. He tells Nicodemus some of what might happen. You remember that conversation? We looked at it uh, together. He says this in verse 20 of chapter 3 in John. He says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So very simply, the light of Christ is what reveals what's in the heart of man. It becomes very clear when you draw near to him. The light of Christ, as John speaks of in his letter, is void of any darkness. There is no sin. We know that he was tempted in all things, but he never committed sin. Pure light without any darkness. That light was revealed to mankind in the life of Jesus Christ. And it takes his light to know what's in our heart. 
Okay, that's important because that's the, the basis, the foundational statement that everything will then look back to when he walks through this passage from here. Let's carry on in chapter uh, 1, verse 6. It says, If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Here's where John takes the light, kind of like we took that egg and we put it up to the light. He takes our heart, our life, and he pulls us close to the light of Christ. And he does so by making a comparison between two things. And he does this three different times, and we'll look at each of these pairs as we go through our passage this morning. But each time he's comparing a heart that is void of life and one that has life. The key to understanding which one he's speaking of is an introductory statement that he gives each time. The first thing he says is, if we say. And that's followed by a negative statement representing the teaching of the false teachers. Then after that, you'll see another statement. He'll say, but if. And that's followed by a positive statement that is intended to represent his counterclaim to those false teachers. The first reveals a heart that is void of life. The second reveals a heart that is filled with the light, the life of Christ. It says in verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Here's where John is describing those who say, Look, I'm just like you. I have fellowship with God just like you do. But yet they make this claim, John says, by, by still walking in darkness. Now, some look at this passage and, and suggest that it may describe uh, someone who claims to be a Christian but who lives something completely different. They may be here on Sunday morning, but they live like the devil in between, right? Involved in parties and maybe sexual immorality and all kinds of uh, greed and deceit and those kinds of things. And, and that may be true as to what he's referring to here. But I think maybe it's different. And here's why. As he's talking about the the false teachers in this letter, he never makes note or mentions any gross immoral sins going on in their life. Instead, as you'll remember with what we talked about last week, he introduces his letter and he undeniably emphasizes the eyewitness account of the life and ministry of, of Jesus Christ. What we have seen, what we have heard, we proclaim to you. He repeats it three times. What we have seen, what we have heard, we proclaim to you. And, and this is the message of Christ, as we've seen this morning. The, what they are proclaiming is what they've heard from, from Jesus. And so I believe John is referring to those who walk in darkness because they are spiritually blind. They have not believed in that message of Christ. Now, they may be good people, living respectable lives, looking very similar to one of us. They, they are even, as we know, involved in the church. He'll say later on in his letter, they, they were among us, but were never one of us. But they do not believe in the message of 
of Jesus, that fellowship with God is dependent upon a relationship with Christ. They do not believe that fellowship with God is dependent upon a relationship with Christ. You see, they they claim to have fellowship with God, but they have not committed their life to Christ. They have not turned to the truth of His Word. Now, they probably know a lot of the right answers. They've been in that environment, but it has not moved from what they hear in their head to what they believe in their heart. And if that's the case, then these people are spiritually dead in their transgressions and sins. And that is a dark place to live. And so John contrasts those people with those who have believed in the message of Christ. Look at what he says in verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. I believe the one another here is not referring to one another as in me and you, but one another as in me and God. Because remember, the emphasis of John's letter is to give us an assurance of our salvation in Christ. That relationship, that fellowship that we have with God. His focus is on what it means to be rightly related to God. What he's saying is that when I reflect a new life of Christ in my heart, that's the only way that I can claim to be in a relationship with God. The false teachers were claiming to to have a relationship with God. But their life did not reflect the new creation of who we are in Christ. Keep in mind that John is not just talking about where we stand. He uses the word specifically how we walk, right? So it's not just any one moment in time. It's the, the pattern of how we live our life. And he wants us to know. He's asking us the question, does your life reflect a dependence upon Christ? Or are you doing pretty good on your own? Does your life reflect a dependence upon Christ, a a daily dependence upon Christ? Or are you doing pretty good on your own? It's a good question. You see, if you have fellowship with God and you draw near to Christ, you are increasingly transformed to reflect the image of Christ. In other words, our, our sanctification, our growth in Christ gives evidence of our justification, our salvation in Christ. That's John's point. See, when we see God's light shine on our life, we see the sin that's in our heart. And it draws us to God with a desire to have salvation through Christ alone, which begins and continues with the cleansing blood of the cross. John then continues this thought as he moves on in verse 8. He says, now if we say we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. As I mentioned in the beginning here, the if we say clause again introduces a teaching of the false teachers. They say we have no sin. More literally, it should be understood as those who claim they do not bear the guilt of sin. You see, sin in this context is is singular with no definitive article. So it's speaking more of a sin nature than any one particular act of sin. In other words, the false teachers were claiming to have fellowship with God while denying a need for Christ. Because they do not bear the guilt of sin. They do not acknowledge the presence of a sin nature. Now, it's likely that they admired the teaching of Jesus. They may have even looked at him as a martyr and seen what happened on the cross as an unfortunate end to his life. But they did not see his sacrifice as necessary for the forgiveness of their sins. And they came to this conclusion because they did not acknowledge the sinful depravity of man's heart. And even though we all make mistakes, these false teachers believe that that man's heart is basically good. And as long as you're sorry for what you did, then everything's going to be okay. And here's the key. Their conviction was was based on the fact that that they believe that my forgiveness has more to do with how I feel about my sin than it does with what God says about my sin. If I feel bad about what I've done, then God is going to give me a break. But I want you to know very clearly that that is not the testimony of Scripture. God says very clearly... That no one is righteous, not even one. Okay, that makes it pretty simple, doesn't it? No one seeks after God. Now, we remember that passage from Romans, don't we? When Paul's quoting that. But he's looking back to an Old Testament passage that is intended to reflect God's view of man's heart. And that's his conclusion. Now, Paul will go on to say that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. So God cannot look away from our sin in His righteousness because it demands His judgment. Going back to that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, I I keep bringing that up and I'm about to believe that that was a pretty important conversation, right? Because there's there's continually things that come out of that interaction. The verse that we're all familiar with is John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave... His only beloved Son, so that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. But look at what He says next. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. You see, there will be a judgment day. And you're truly deceived if you do not believe that you bear the guilt of sin and are in desperate need of a Savior. John wants his reader to understand if someone does not recognize the existence of a sin nature, then there is no need for the forgiveness of a Savior. And if there is no need for a Savior, then there is no fellowship with God. You can imagine how 
as the false teachers were involved in these churches, how this confusion continued to, to mount. Here I am as a Christian concerned about the sin that the light of God continues to expose in my heart, and I have these teachers coming up saying, hey, listen, you're all worked up about nothing. Lighten up a little bit. It's not that big of a deal. So John steps in and proclaims a message that's altogether different. And what he's going to tell us is that Christians are people of confession. Christians are people of confession. Look at what he says in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is that contrasting view to the teaching of the false teachers. The word if in this context is not a conditional clause, which would suggest that our forgiveness is dependent upon our confession. And if that were the case, it really wouldn't be all that much different than what they were hearing from the false teachers who taught that we merit our forgiveness based on how we feel about our sin. That it begins with me. I initiate towards God and He responds to what I reveal to Him. Instead, John is contrasting that view with something different. He's teaching that Forgiveness has more to do with what God says about my sin than what I feel about my sin. That God moves first. That it is His light that reveals. Then I respond to that. The word confess in this context means to agree. Or more specifically, to agree regarding the presence of sin that His light has revealed in my life. And only when we acknowledge our sin do we then turn to God for a solution. (laughs) Because it doesn't matter how bad I feel. When I recognize what's in my heart, my only right conclusion is, I can't do anything about it. I've got a problem that I can't solve. But God says, have a solution. And that solution is the cross where He promised to forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now, look back at verse 9 again and I don't want you to miss something that's very important. It says that His forgiveness is ultimately based on His character and not on our confession. Why does He forgive us? Because He is faithful and righteous to forgive. It's based on His character, not my confession. He forgives because He is faithful and righteous. He forgives because He promised He would. He forgives because the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross is is sufficient to forgive us of all unrighteousness because of His character. You see the difference? One looks at forgiveness based on on how I feel, because my heart is essentially good, and so I can rest on my own assurance. But John says that our forgiveness is based on what God says, because our heart is deceitful. 
And so the only peace I can find is when I trust in His promise, His character, His faithfulness, His righteousness. Confession is the awareness of the sin in my heart that His light reveals and the conviction that God's forgiveness is complete at the cross. Past, present, and future. Isn't that a greater assurance? To believe that that my forgiveness is based on what He's done and not what I must do? Doesn't that give you more assurance to believe and understand and know that to be true? That's John's point. And because of this assurance, shouldn't we be motivated to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us so that we might more accurately reflect the heart of the one who has saved us? Wouldn't that make sense? That's the point that John makes next. Look at what he says in verse 10. Verse 10, he says, If we say that we have not sinned, then we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He begins by saying, look, if if we minimize our sin, we minimize the cross. And if the cross is not all that important, then God is a liar because that was His idea. To begin with. Keep in mind, John is speaking to those who claim to have fellowship with God without a dependence upon Christ. They do not accept the truth of God and the life of Christ whose very incarnation, the very reason that His light shined among us is because we lived in darkness in the presence of sin that requires an eternal judgment. These false teachers are living in spiritual darkness because they do not have the light of Christ within them. And as a result, they are blind to their sin nature and they do not see the need for a cross. And yet, they still claim to have fellowship with God, which makes him out to be a liar. Because the word spoken through the life of Christ says that we do not have eternal life apart from Him. And so John clarifies. I'm writing to you. He says, my little children. And you just get this sense that these are people that he knows, that he loves, that he, he cares deeply about. And he says, I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. And let's be clear here, he's not in any way suggesting that his expectation is that they may no longer make any mistakes from that point forward. But instead, he wants them to live with the desire not to sin as God brings sin to their awareness. As I've thought about this, one of my convictions is it is the grace of God that we do not see the full depravity of our life in one view. I don't think we... There's not a person in this room that could get up from underneath that. He he reveals to us what He wants us to see with the desire to help us understand that He has the solution. And bit by bit, He wants us to grow in our understanding and knowledge to be conformed into His image. 
You see, the freedom found in the forgiveness of the cross should motivate us towards a life of purity and never an attitude of apathy. Because if that's the case, we just don't understand. A true Christian understands the magnitude of the work that took place on the cross. John explains it by using that big word, propitiation. (laughs) Thankfully, it's only used twice in the New Testament. And both times it's in his letter. But he uses it because it's a really graphic term. It's a term used to describe God's judgment upon evil and sin in the world. It just, it's a weighty, it's a, it's a powerful word. I think he wants us to understand that we stand before God only because Jesus Christ stood in our place. He is our advocate. He took upon Himself that wrathful punishment that God's righteousness demanded upon the sin in our life. So that the only way we walk in fellowship with God is through the sacrifice made on the cross. So why? Why would we willingly continue in the sin that put him there to begin with. John says, find refuge in the forgiveness of God's grace. And then, like Jesus would say, go and sin no more. Go and, and pursue godliness. Go and, and live pure and holy lives. And when the light of Christ reveals sin in your heart, then continue to confess. And know that that blood that was shed on the cross cleanses you of all unrighteousness. As we finish up this morning, reminding you again, John's writing this letter to give an assurance of salvation to those who are being confused by false teaching. He says, I'm writing so that you may know, you may know that you have eternal life. And so I want us to take some of the things that he said this morning in our passage and apply it to our lives so that we can have that same assurance see the false teachers were creating confusion because ultimately they were denying the deity of christ they claimed to have fellowship with god while rejecting the necessity of christ's sacrifice on the cross and even today there are people in and and outside the church who continue to walk in darkness content to live a life outside of the dependence of upon who Jesus is and what he did on our behalf. And so let's take that assurance that he gives and and apply it to our life. And, And let's begin with this. Let's affirm together that our fellowship with God is based on a daily dependence upon Christ. Can we do that? Let's agree together that our fellowship with God is based upon a daily dependence upon Christ. Jesus himself said it. Do we need to go further than that? He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. And now John calls us to walk in that awareness. He says, walk in the light. It's this pattern of life, this daily dependence, this moment-by-moment understanding that I live in dependence upon him. In other words, there's not a moment in my life 
that I am sufficient to make it on my own. You understand that, right? There is not a moment in your life that you are sufficient to make it on your own. And praise God for that. Isn't there a greater assurance in knowing that I rest in His sovereign control instead of being dependent upon what I can accomplish on my own? I don't know about you, but I'll take option A over option B. You and I live in a daily dependence upon the grace of God found only in the love of Christ. And we need to understand that all the things in our heart that we long for most are ultimately found in Him. Right? How many of you really, really desire to be loved? Show of hands. Anybody? I should see everybody's hand. And the desire to give love. How many of you really want to experience a joy in your heart? Just where you're content with life and thankful for what you have. How about peace in the midst of difficult times? How many of you struggle sometimes with, with anxiety and, and difficult circumstances and you just, you just want peace and, and patience, right? What about kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? Those sound familiar? You will not find any of those things in your life the way that God designed them to be in all sufficiency apart from Him. Those are fruits of the Spirit, not fruits of Lance or fruits of Bill. We don't possess them on our own. We experience them through our life in Christ. It's found in our fellowship with God when we die to ourselves so that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I say that knowing that God is gracious as we learn to live in this truth. We walk in a daily dependence and there's not a person in this room that woke up one day and boom, had it all together from that moment on. Nobody's done that. Nobody ever will. We must grow in godliness. And God is gracious to us in the process. I think very often He will let us go our own way just so that we learn and understand that we don't have what it takes. That we cannot trust ourselves. We cannot live pure lives in our own strength. Even in our best moments. And so God has called us to approach the throne of grace with confidence. That's what His Scripture says. So why? That we might find grace and help in our time of need, right? Christians are marked by lives of consistent confession as we acknowledge His strength in the midst of our weakness. When we go and we confess these things to God, what's most important is not what we've done, but what He's done. And we acknowledge what He's accomplished on our behalf. The Scripture tells us to confess to God, but it also tells us in James to confess to one another so that we might be healed. My own personal opinion as to why that's there is because sometimes I can fool myself. And I can go before God and I can go through the motions of confession and I can feel better about what I've done and then I go back and do the same thing over and over again. And sometimes if I'm really serious about that, I'm going to go tell Lance. I'm going to tell Doug, will you pray for me? There's something I'm struggling with. And Doug knows when I do that with him, I'm serious about what I just told him. 
And I think sometimes we need to see those coexist in our life. What we confess to the Lord in private and what we confess to one another in public. C.S. Lewis says it this way in Mere Christianity. He says, we learn on the one hand that we cannot trust ourselves, even in our best moments. We said that. He goes on and says, on the other hand, that we need not despair even our worst, for our failures are forgiven. The only fatal thing is to sit down content with anything less than perfection. Which brings me to my last point. We need to walk in a daily dependence. We need to have confidence in our confession. But we always need to seek to grow in godliness, never to sit down with anything less than perfection. There's a biography that I picked up recently. It actually includes a biography of several people. And one of the people that uh, this author speaks of is Eric Little from Chariots of Fire. Right? Y'all are all familiar with that. Many of you have probably seen the, the movie. And if you have, you'll remember this scene. And I want to read this to you as he captures it. He writes so well. And I want you to just kind of picture this in your mind. Will you do that? Before I do that, let me turn to something I want to look at here in a minute. Okay. Get this in your mind. Everybody listen. If you've seen the movie, you'll probably remember that one of the most unforgettable and dramatic scenes in Chariots of Fire involves a quarter-mile race in which Eric is accidentally knocked down by a competitor, but against all odds, he manages to win anyway. And you have to remember, this is years ago, uh, 1923, and so they really didn't have lanes to speak of. It was just kind of every man for himself. And so something like this wasn't necessarily unusual. It says, the remarkable event really did happen in July 1923 at Stoke-on-Trent at a so-called triangular contest track meet between Scotland, England, and Ireland. Literally, right out of the blocks, nearly the very, near the very start of the race, Eric was badly knocked down, and in a quarter-mile race at such a high level of competition, fractions of a second determine the winner. Anyone knocked down is quite simply out of contention. But such accidents are unavoidable in the intense rust-and-tumble crowding of such races. In this instant, however, despite the fact that he was 20 yards behind, Eric leaped back to the track and madly gave pursuit. That he was 20 yards behind made the attempt to rejoin the relatively short race seem utterly absurd. Nonetheless, Little ran at such an astonishing pace that the spectators were goggle-eyed and on their feet, wrapped by the unfolding scene before them. Accelerating far behind, Little managed to catch and pass one runner and then another until impossibly he finally overtook the leader and won the race. At last collapsing onto the cinder track, it was an athletic performance for the ages, and no one who was there would ever forget it. You got that in your mind? Listen to this. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary 
and lose heart. When we run the race of faith, we're going to get tripped up along the way. And everything within us is going to say, quit. Stop. Give up. There's no use. But the writer of Hebrews echoes the words of John when he tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus who did not give up on you. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and he finished the race. His love for us should be our motivation of devotion to him. We get up because we've been forgiven. We continue because He gives us strength. We finish well because He made a way. And we run together. I think probably a better scene is one I think we've heard of as well in the Special Olympics, right? Similar scene. They all take off on the race. Somebody falls. Do you remember what happened? Every single runner stopped, went back to the one who fell so that they could all run across the line together. I think that is a more apt description of what we are called to in the body of Christ. So as we're running this race and we want to finish well, when somebody stumbles, stop. Go back. Pick them up. Remind them about the forgiveness, the grace, the love that we have in Christ and help them press on and finish well. You see, the assurance of our salvation comes when we walk in the light. And we have that daily dependence upon Christ, knowing that apart from Him, we can do nothing. We live with a, a heart of consistent confession, both to God and, and to one another, with the assurance of His forgiveness, motivated to pursue a life of godliness. That's our assurance. Let's live that way together. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the vivid pictures in Scripture. Just the way that your light just exposes things that are true and right and good so that they can be seen so clearly. I attribute that to your grace, your mercy, your love. Because you don't want us to miss it. I even think of that passage that we read this morning that it talks about that what you did was sufficient for the whole world. So may we live in a way that our light shines and, it, and that it may give glory to God for the good works they see in our life. That they see that that light exposes within us the life of Christ. And may we live that together as brothers and sisters bound to one another with a common faith in our Savior. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen.